Well, I'd just like to begin by saying that I am totally excited to get to be here this week. The Master's College is my alma mater, and so I feel like I am one of you, and just being back here in the chapel and hearing you sing praises to our Lord, it just brings back such a flood of just wonderful memories. So I'm thrilled. Thank you for... Thank you for letting me be part of this Truth in Life conference on such an important theme. I'd like to begin with an illustration from the pages of church history. It's one you may have heard before, and yet this man's story is such that at least every time I hear it, I am impacted. He was a wealthy Chicago attorney, a committed Christian, and a friend of the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. Yet like a 19th century Job, this man would suffer greatly. His trials began with the great Chicago fire of October 1871. A number of real estate investments that he had literally burned to the ground. He was left almost destitute. In the aftermath of it all, he decided to take his family to Europe for a little bit of vacation. Trip was scheduled for November 1873, but due to some last minute business responsibilities, he stayed behind and he sent his family on. He could never have imagined that the ship that his family was on, it would never reach its destination. Striking another vessel while at sea, it sank to the ocean floor in less than 15 minutes. All four of his daughters, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, Tanita, all four of his daughters were, were drowned that day. Incredibly, his wife survived, sending her husband the heartbreaking telegram, saved alone. Well, immediately he left Chicago and got on a ship and embarked for Wales where his wife was waiting for him. And the ship, it came to the approximate place where his daughters had died. And he would later recount that at that very moment, in spite of the grief, he felt peace like a river, even as he saw the, the billowing waves of the sea. And it was only as he looked to Christ that Horatio Spafford could respond to his grief, not in despair, but by writing the words of the well-known hymn, It is well with my soul. You know these words. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, whatever my circumstance, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet and trials should come, this blessed assurance, this confidence that I have will control my heart that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He shed his own blood for my soul. And so my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole of it, it's nailed to the cross. I don't bear it anymore. It is well. I can praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. In the midst of unspeakable sorrow, this dear Christian man could still express the joy and the peace of a Christ-centered perspective. And even as I recounted those words, we hear things like blessed and bliss and glorious and the refrain, it is well with my soul. These are echoes of a heart that truly knows the joy of salvation and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And in our time together this morning, I've been asked to address 
joy and peace from Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, to 23. And we've already seen from the two wonderful messages, one that we heard last night and then just this morning, that the fruit of the Spirit does not consist of some sort of external list of self-improvement techniques. This is not a sanctified New Year's resolution. No, these fruit, or as Chris reminded us, this fruit, it is evidence of the Spirit's working in our hearts as he puts our eyes on Jesus and conforms us into the image of our Savior. In fact, a study of the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit reveals that he continually points people to Christ. According to John 15, 26, the Spirit's ministry is to testify about Christ. He puts the spotlight on the Lord Jesus. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners so that they become new creatures in Christ. He seals them in Christ. And then as we live the Christian life, it is the Spirit who gives us the mind of Christ. He illuminates for us the word of Christ so that we can walk in Christ and grow in Christ. The Holy Spirit enables us to put on Christ, to follow Christ. He is the one that causes us to grow in Christ's likeness. And according to Romans 8, 11, he will one day raise us just as the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. Everything about the Spirit's ministry points to Christ. And that is why even when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it is right for us to put the focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ because to honor the Savior is to honor the Spirit who testifies of him. With that in mind then, I'm looking forward in this time to spending a few minutes together considering what it means that the fruit of the Spirit includes joy and peace. How can these realities be found in Jesus Christ? We live in a world where people are constantly searching for joy and peace. Now, they use different terms sometimes, words like happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment, words like safety and security and rest. But no matter the terms, they find themselves in an unending pursuit of a joy that truly satisfies and a peace that really lasts. Interestingly, maybe it's the historian me, I noticed that the Declaration of Independence includes both the pursuit of happiness and a reasonable expectation of safety as basic human rights. But promising the right to pursue happiness is different than actually providing happiness. And promoting a sense of national security is not the same thing as enabling someone to experience personal peace. The reality is that the American dream, it cannot satisfy or secure anyone, no matter how many advertisements we read that promise us satisfaction guaranteed. And so people spend their entire lives in a constant search for happiness, for security, for joy, for peace. And that is because the unredeemed heart is always searching for satisfaction and tranquility, but it can never find it outside of Christ. It was this reality that the church father Augustine referred to when he said of sinful, unredeemed mankind, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless. And in their restlessness, unredeemed sinners search for happiness and peace like hungry beggars scouring the garbage dump of this world. But the passing pleasures of sin can never satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. It reminds me of when I used to work at Magic Mountain. I worked at a very esteemed 
establishment there at Magic Mountain called the Mooseburger Lodge. It's humbling just to speak those words. I was a table server there for, uh, for seven summers. It was while I was here at the college, in fact, I used to work summers at the Mooseburger Lodge. And you know what, people would come in and uh, they would wait. We were one of the few air-conditioned restaurants at Magic Mountain, they would wait for like an hour. And I would sometimes go out into the lobby and I would see these people sitting there and there would be families there. And I always felt a little bit bad, especially for, for the dad. Because he had spent all of this money thinking that going to Magic Mountain was going to bring happiness to his family. But they were hot and hungry and grumpy. And I, I couldn't help but wondering sometimes if perhaps those dads were th sitting there thinking, man, this is a big disappointment. I paid all of that for some momentary thrills and it didn't accomplish what I had been promised it would accomplish. And in some ways, I think, in some small way, that pictures the unredeemed human heart searching for satisfaction and trying to find it in some momentary thrill but never considering the cost and even in the moment realizing it doesn't deliver on what is promised. There is, however, a source of true joy and true peace that can satisfy the heart and settle the mind. To complete that prayer from Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. Augustine knew from firsthand experience what he was talking about. He had grown up in a Christian family. His mother was a devout Christian. She had taught him the gospel from an early age. And yet when he got older, he rejected it all, broke his mother's heart, and went out into the world to find happiness. He searched for satisfaction in philosophy and rhetoric, but he found them empty. He looked for it in the arms of his mistress with whom he had a son out of wedlock, but his romantic exploits could not fill the void in his heart. He even joined a Gnostic cult called Manichaeanism. But it was all emptiness. Augustine may have run from God, but he could not outrun God, and in God's grace, the Lord reached down and he drew this sinner to himself and he radically saved him and he transformed him. And years later, as Augustine reflected on his own personal testimony, writing in his work called His Confessions, he reflected on his conversion and he resonated with the truth of that prayer. Our hearts are restless, Lord. They are restless until they find their rest in you. And I relate that count to you this morning because there are undoubtedly some of you here today who like Augustine before his conversion think that you can find satisfaction and security outside of Jesus Christ. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home like he did and you know the gospel. Maybe you even made a profession of faith at some point and yet your heart has not let go of its desire to pursue happiness and security in the passing pleasures of this world. As if the immorality and greed and sensuality and self-centeredness and the things that are talked about in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, as if the filth of this world could satisfy the longings of your heart. And I just want to make sure at the outset this morning that I say as clearly as I possibly can, true joy and true peace can only be found in Jesus Christ. And those who search for it outside him will never find it. They are embarking on a fool's errand. They are like someone chasing rainbows for treasure, only to come back 
cold and wet and muddy and empty-handed. The happiness and security of this world is an illusion, a facade, a mirage. Apart from God, the passing pleasures of this life are ultimately meaningless, and there is perhaps no greater example of that truth than King Solomon, who according to Ecclesiastes 2, tried to find happiness in alcohol, romance, wealth, entertainment, his career, and in the pursuit of his own wisdom. He was the richest, smartest, most powerful, most famous man of his day. Solomon was completely miserable. We know this because at the end of his life, as he pens the book of Ecclesiastes, he looks back on all of these pursuits, and what does he say? He says, it is vanity, it is worthless, it is emptiness. It's all vanity, apart from Christ. And as he closes the book of Ecclesiastes, of course, he gives us the right conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments. But Solomon, through his own experience, though he knew what the right thing to do was, through his own experience, it was only at the end of his life that he came to realize he had wasted it, seeking joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, security, and peace in things that cannot provide those apart from Christ. Real joy and real peace can only be found in the Lord. True satisfaction and true security are only available through him. Now, for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given this joy and we have been given true peace. And so it, it should not surprise us to see that joy and peace are characteristics that mark the lives of those who know and love the Lord Jesus. But what do we mean when we say joy? And what do we mean when we say peace? Joy is not a character in a Disney movie. It's one of the great reasons to have kids. You can watch Disney movies and you don't have to apologize later or feel foolish because you're like, I was watching them with my kids. <laughs> now, when we speak of true joy, we are speaking of an inner comfort and delight that does not depend on what happens outside of us to us because our joy is in Christ. It is not tied to our circumstances. And when we speak of true peace, we're not referring to either national diplomacy or some sort of mindless meditative state. No, we are referring to the tranquility and confidence from coming or that comes from knowing that God is in control and that we have been reconciled to him through Christ. And because this joy and this peace does not depend on our circumstances, we can have joy in the midst of trials, right? James 1. And we can rejoice when we suffer for Christ like the apostles in Acts chapter 5. And we can smile at the future. We can even rejoice in the face of death because we can say with the apostle Paul, oh death, where is your victory? Where's your sting? You got nothing death because we've been given the victory through Christ true joy sees momentary light affliction for what it really is that which precedes an eternal weight of glory that awaits the true believer in heaven and this joy is something only those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ can experience because as John 15 11 explains he has made our joy complete where does this joy come from? Well, it is predicated upon the fact that we possess the peace of God. And we have that because we have made peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No circumstance, no person can change that. 
And because I have peace with God, I can have continual joy no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens to you. It was this kind of settled confidence that Christ promised to his disciples in John 14, 27, when he said to them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be fearful. Our hearts don't need to fear because our confidence is in the Lord, the one who saved us, loves us has promised his good for us. No one can take us out of his hands. No one can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, because the sovereign of the universe is also our heavenly father, we have no reason to fear, and that fuels our joy. Because we possess peace with God, we know the joy of salvation. Paul brought these two things together in Romans 15, 13 when he said, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That kind of joy and peace, that's an internal reality. That kind of joy and peace, that's not something fleeting or momentary or temporary. It's grounded in a saving relationship with God through Christ, and it expresses itself then in joyful attitudes and peaceful tranquility. Not something that's subjective because our circumstances are good, but something that's objective because our position in Christ is certain. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to speak at the Juniors Winter Camp for Grace Church. Juniors is fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. I have two boys who are currently in juniors, so I got to hang out with them for the weekend, do my best not to embarrass them too much. And the storm that came through last week, it left about two feet of snow where we were, so the kids just had a blast. It was awesome. Our theme for the weekend was Pilgrim's Progress, and we were using John Bunyan's classic to illustrate the Christian life. I'm sure you're familiar enough with the story of Pilgrim's Progress to remember that there was this man who lived in the city of destruction, and he had a weight on his back, and the weight was the guilt of his sin. And the man had no joy and no peace because he knew his city would be destroyed and he knew his burden would plunge him down into hell. And he met a man named Evangelist and Evangelist showed him the way that he must go. And this man fled from the city of destruction and he entered through the narrow gate and he came to the place where he saw the cross and he saw the empty tomb. And he believed. And in that moment, the weight of his sin fell off of his shoulders and it rolled down the hill. And I love Bunyan's analogy, his allegory. It rolled into the empty tomb and disappeared forever. For the first time in his life, he experienced the joy of salvation and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus this morning, you know that kind of peace because the testimony that is illustrated by Pilgrim's Progress is the testimony of every true believer in Jesus Christ. And yet, as the man whose name was changed to Christian as he continued on his journey, he encountered trials and temptations that threatened that joy, threatened his tranquility. One of the most well-known was a place called Doubting Castle. There was a monster who lived there whose name was Giant Despair. And Giant Despair... 
He would terrorize the pilgrims by tempting them to doubt God's word and doubt his promises. What a, what a vivid word picture because when discouragement tempts us, it is like this giant cloud of despair. Pilgrim's Progress is just an allegory, but it helpfully illustrates the fact that even after we have repented and believed, there are still things that can threaten our joy and tranquility, tempting us to become anxious and fearful and discouraged and downhearted. How do we, how do we guard ourselves against those kinds of temptations? How do we guard ourselves against that which threatens to steal our joy in the Christian life? Well, obviously, sin can steal our joy, and that's why it's important that we promptly confess our sin to the Lord, so that when we do, we can be like David in Psalm 51, verse 12, who confidently prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. But what about those times when the troubles and trials of life threaten to dampen our joy? How can we exhibit true joy and peace in the midst of that kind of difficulty and hardship? Well, as we seek to answer those questions this morning, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. Because it is here that we find the Apostle Paul calling his readers to walk in the joy of the Lord and to rest in the peace of God even in the midst of difficult circumstances. When Paul wrote this letter, book of Philippians, he had been a missionary for about 13 years. And on his missionary journeys, he had experienced great persecution for the sake of the gospel. He had been beaten, whipped, stoned and left for dead, imprisoned, shipwrecked multiple times. He traveled in constant danger, often hungry and thirsty, enduring many sleepless nights, hated by the Jews, mocked by the Gentiles, wrongly accused by false teachers, and sometimes betrayed by the people in the churches that he himself had planted. And now as he wrote this letter, he finds himself under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. About 10 years earlier, when he first came to Philippi on his second missionary journey, he had been arrested and imprisoned there as well. In fact, the church at Philippi grew out of that imprisonment because you remember the story from Acts 16. Paul and Silas, they were there in jail. They were singing. An earthquake set them free. And the Philippian jailer saw their peace and their joy, and he wanted that, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And he was radically transformed by God's grace. And there was a church then in Philippi. But now Paul is incarcerated once again, this time in Rome. And not only that, but we learn in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, that there were some who were preaching the gospel out of envy and strife just to spite Paul. And we find in chapter 2, verse 20, that Paul was virtually alone. He only had Timothy with him, and he planned to send Timothy to the Philippians. And not only that, but in chapter 3, we see that there were false teachers who were threatening this congregation. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, we see that there was disunity within the congregation itself. So it's perhaps no surprise that the theme of Philippians, or at least one of the primary themes of Philippians, is joy, and another is unity. Here's Paul. He's incarcerated without freedom, chained to a Roman guard, awaiting trial before a pagan emperor, snubbed by other so-called Christians. He's alone. He's writing to a church he planted, but one that is now being threatened from the outside by false teachers and from the inside by division. Are those the kind of circumstances in which you would expect someone to exhibit joy and peace? Not so much. 
And yet, as I mentioned, joy and unity, joy and peacemaking are two of the major themes of this book, and those themes continue here into chapter 4. Now, we won't do a full exposition of this chapter, but I do want to highlight three points of emphasis in keeping with our theme this morning of joy and peace. If you're taking notes, these three points will serve as our outline. First, we will look at the source of true joy. Then we will look at the substance of true peace. And finally, we will consider the strength that enables us to walk in true joy and in true peace. And we'll develop each of those points as we go through. Now you'll notice as you look at verses 2 and 3 of Philippians chapter 4 that the church of Philippi was experiencing internal conflict. Paul writes, chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 3 to encourage the readers to help these two ladies get along. On the one hand, I, I almost feel a little bit of sympathy for these two ladies. Their names are forever inscribed on the pages of Scripture because they were in a feud. But this seems to have been more than just a minor conflict. Whatever the specifics, the situation must have been serious enough that Paul sees fit to address the entire congregation, hey, help these two ladies get along. I don't know, maybe one was from Hotchkiss and one was from Dixon. <laughs> Given our Lord's instruction in Matthew 18, perhaps this was reaching a stage of church discipline, step three. But it's clear that whatever the situation was, it was robbing the Philippian congregation of their joy and their peace. I have no doubt that some of you have come from churches back home where you have seen this kind of division destroy the joy and peace of a church. Paul recognizes the danger and that's why he urges others in the church to help these women so that the conflict is resolved and relationships can heal. And so it is against that backdrop then that the apostle instructs these believers on how to walk in joy and in peace. And he does that first by reminding them of the source of true joy. The source of true joy. Look at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I love how Paul repeats that command. Hey, rejoice. Hey, rejoice. He doesn't want them to miss it. In fact, this has been a theme that he has reiterated throughout this entire letter. Chapter two, verse two, he asks them to make his joy complete as they live in Christ-like humility. In chapter two, verses 17 to 18, he calls them to rejoice along with him. And in chapter three, verse one, he says rejoice in the Lord, just as he does here. So this isn't just the second time he said this, this is like the fifth time. But how could this church, in the midst of a conflict, fulfill this command to rejoice? And how could Paul, sitting, well, it's under house arrest, but essentially in prison, chained to a Roman guard, how could he tell them to be joyful? The answer is immediately apparent when we recognize that the source of the joy that Paul was calling his readers to exhibit, the source of that joy is not in his circumstances, it is in his Savior. Rejoice in the Lord. This is not a call to find happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction in the circumstances of this life. This is a call to find true happiness in the unchanging, faithful, ever-present, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, sovereign Lord of the universe.
When our joy is found in the Lord and not in our circumstances, we can be joyful no matter what is happening to us. No matter how much homework we have. When conflicts arise or trials come or opposition presents itself or insults are hurled, we can still respond with joy because the source of our joy never changes. You see, when, when Paul issues that command to rejoice, it's not given in a vacuum. This is not just try to be happy for happiness sake. This is not something you put on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. This is not something that is adequately represented by a happy face emoticon. No, this is a call to rejoice in the Lord. He is both the source and the substance of our joy, and that is why Paul could be scorned, neglected, persecuted, and incarcerated, and yet his joy didn't change. Because the source and the substance of his joy didn't change. It was out of this Christ-centered joy that Paul continues in verse five by encouraging the Philippians to treat one another with a graciousness, a gentleness that exhibits that kind of joy-filled spirit. As these believers looked to Christ and found their joy in him, they would have been reminded of his example about how Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross so that we as unworthy sinners might partake in his heavenly joy. And just as he responded in grace and humility and kindness towards us, we also ought to respond in that same attitude toward others. But as we think about these verses this morning, in keeping with our theme, I want the focus not to be lost on the source of our joy. Do you lack joy In the midst of whatever hardship you are enduring, do you lack joy? Put your eyes on Christ. Take your eyes off of yourself, off of your circumstances, and put them on Christ. You cannot have joy apart from Christ. Look to him. Because if the source of your joy is Jesus Christ, then no circumstance or person can steal it away from you. Our hearts are truly satisfied only when they find their joy in God. As we come to verses six and seven in this passage, we find a second point of emphasis. Not only has Paul instructed the Philippians to remember the source of their joy, but now... He instructs them to rest or to find their rest in the substance of true peace. The substance of true peace. Look at what Paul writes. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are familiar verses. Many of you probably have this verse memorized. But don't let the familiarity that you have with this text, don't let it diminish your appreciation for the truth that it conveys. Consider the context again. We have a Philippian congregation in which there is infighting. And don't forget Paul's circumstances either. He's imprisoned and awaiting trial. Surely these are causes just causes, we might think, for anxiety and and apprehension and fear. And Paul says no. No. Rather than becoming fearful, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, when people mistreat me, when they don't like me, when life is hard, No, I will not be anxious, Paul says. I will cast my cares on Christ with a thankful heart. And as a result of that, my heart and my mind will be protected by the peace of God that surpasses human understanding and it's all possible through Christ. 
You see, prayer kills anxiety. Prayer kills anxiety. And it brings peace because it conforms our will to God's as we acknowledge that we must trust him and depend on him. Prayer is also the place where we confess our worries and our disappointments, isn't it? Where we ask, in, where we ask him to strengthen us so that we might remain steadfast even in the midst of the trial. And as a result, as we depend on God, prayerfully and thankfully trusting him, he gives us a supernatural peace that goes beyond any human explanation which protects our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of peace, the substance of which the world knows nothing about. It turns our worries into worship. It turns our sorrows into song. Look, this life gives us plenty of opportunities to worry, doesn't it? Pretty much any time you log on to some news website, read the headlines, there is reason to worry. There's always the threat of natural disaster. Scientists keep telling us that the big one, the earthquake, is coming to Los Angeles, supposedly in the next two years. There's always the threat of domestic terrorism, right? What happened in San Bernardino. There's always the threat of governmental persecution. It was just this last summer that the Supreme Court officially sided with an unbiblical moral worldview. There's the threat of foreign attack. Iran will probably have nuclear weapons in the next few years. North Korea is developing its long-range missile capacity supposedly capable of reaching the West Coast. ISIS wants everybody dead. They want to start World War III. Well, and then, as college students, there's the daily weight of your responsibilities, your friendships, your family, your health, your career, your classes, your schedule, and pretty soon, it's easy to make a long list of worry. Christians, our response to those kinds of things should never be to freak out. Rather, we respond in prayer because our Heavenly Father is also the God of the universe. He not only loves us and has promised his good for us, but he controls all of those things. He controls natural disasters. He controls the governments of this world. And he's in control of your life. And as we align our hearts and our wills with the Lord through prayer, our minds are able to think rightly about what's happening around us, which is why I think Paul goes immediately into verse eight to talking about how to think. How is it possible to think rightly? Well, because my will and my heart and my mind has been aligned with God's will. And I'm trusting him. How can these readers meditate on those things that are listed there in verse eight when their church is brewing with conflict and how can Paul dwell on these things as he sits a prisoner chained to a Roman soldier? Is it not because he knows the joy of the Lord and he knows the peace that surpasses all comprehension? You see, that is the supernatural substance of the peace that God supplies. It's a peace the world can never know, but you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given that peace. Well, we've seen the source of true joy in verse four. We've seen the substance of true peace in verses six and seven. But there's a third point that I'd like us to consider this morning, and in many ways, this third point brings the other two points together. It's the culmination of them. It shows one particular way in which they can be applied. Having called them to rejoice in the Lord and having called them to rest in God's peace, Paul now instructs his readers to consider the strength 
that enables both joy and peace. The strength that makes it possible to have this kind of joy and this kind of peace in the midst of really difficult circumstances. To come to the place where your daughters drown in the sea and you say, it is well with my soul. How is that possible? This is in verses nine to 13. Paul points to his own life and he calls the Philippians to emulate his example. Look at verse nine. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And then after talking about his example, he immediately begins to talk about contentment. Verse 10, he thanks them for sending a love offering to him. Then in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then this verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You guys know that verse because that's, outside of John 3, 16, the most popular verse in evangelicalism. You can buy that reference, Philippians 4, 13, on almost any trinket you can imagine. Google it sometime. It was even made famous a few years ago because there was a championship college quarterback who liked to print Philippians 4, 13 on the glare-reducing strips that he put under his eyes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great verse. The problem with evangelical culture is that it tends to take those kinds of verses and completely ignore the context. You see, because many people think that this verse is about changing their circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is some sort of slogan of personal empowerment. I can get that better job. I can get a better grade in my class. I can win the football game. For many, this verse has been trivialized into some sort of motivating motto for material prosperity, career advancement, or athletic success. But in the context, it is nothing of the sort. This is not about making your circumstances better. This is about having true joy and true peace in the midst of any circumstance. Paul's saying, look, I can be content. What is contentment? Contentment is joy and peace all the time, anytime. Paul's saying, I I can have joy and peace in any circumstance. I could be hungry or I could be full. I could have plenty or I could be in want. I could be a free man or I could be a prisoner. I could be alive or I could be dead. Right, earlier in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He makes my joy and my peace possible in any circumstance. See, this isn't about winning the football game. It's about how you respond when you lose the football game, when you don't get the job you want, when you don't get the grade that you studied to get, or when you're in prison next to a Roman guard awaiting trial before Nero, writing to a group of people who are experiencing severe division within their congregation. How is this possible? Well, Paul has pointed to Christ again. Right in verse four, the source of our joy, it's Christ. And in verse seven, how is our peace secured? Through Christ. And in verse 13, where does the strength come from to have joy and peace in any circumstance? It comes from Christ. 
And so to say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is to say I can find joy and peace in the midst of any situation because the source of my joy doesn't change and the substance of my peace surpasses human understanding and the strength of my life is none other than my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so you see that what the world cannot offer you, neither here nor in eternity, Christ offers to all who have embraced him in saving faith. True joy and true peace, they begin at the moment of salvation when sinners believe in him and like the man in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, their burden falls off. And as we journey through the Christian life, true joy and true peace continue to be ours as we look to Christ, as we rejoice in him, and the peace of God guards our hearts in him, and we find settled satisfaction in any situation because of the strength that he supplies. And listen, the source and the substance and the strength of our joy and our peace in this life, it will remain the source and the substance and the strength of our joy and our peace for all of eternity. To find your joy in Christ is a foretaste of heaven. To know his peace is a foretaste of glory. And one day, one day we will know true joy and true peace in its fullest measure one day, we will be welcomed into the joy of our master, and we will dwell forever with the prince of peace. It all comes back to the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? And yet, that's what the Holy Spirit does to sanctify us. He shows us Christ. He conforms us into the image of Christ, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit as we become more like Christ. Do you lack joy this morning? Look to Christ. Are you seeking peace? Find it in Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. What a powerful reminder from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter four that we cannot find joy or peace outside of Christ and yet in Christ joy and peace in any circumstance, in any situation, it is ours. Rejoice in the Lord. The peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit who points us to your Son so that we might grow in Christ-likeness and we do look forward to the day when we will see our Savior face to face. And as we were reminded of last night, we know that at that moment, we will be glorified. We will become like him, for we will see him as he is. We pray these things this morning in his perfect and holy name. Amen.